Hey friends, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris. We're continuing our study on this episode in Theoretical Practical Theology by Peter Van Maastricht. Hopefully you know that by now because we've been in this book for quite a while on our Teaching Thursday segments. But if you're new to the show, if this is your first time listening or watching on YouTube, I want to commend this book to you because we've been going through it uh, at a pretty slow and steady rate. Written by the 17th century Dutch theologian and pastor, Peter Van Maastricht, who is walking us through all of the categories of what we call systematic theology, which is pretty much an A to Z topical study of all of the big ideas in the Bible. And he has started this in volume one on the best method of preaching. We're actually finishing up our study today in his uh, introduction to this book, The Best Method of Preaching. So we're going to be wrapping all of that up. Our next episode will jump into what we call uh, the main body of this book, which is uh, prolegomena. So we're going to start out with uh, the idea of what theology is and how we should understand it as Christians according to the Bible. But I want to commend this book to you. If you are interested in it, you can find a purchase link in the description of this video written by Peter Van Maastricht, Theoretical Practical Theology. I always like to say on these Teaching Thursday episodes that this content that we are going through together, this episode, everything that makes all of this possible is due to my friends and my generous supporters over at Patreon.com. If you've benefited from this podcast and uh, what we do, so my uh, YouTube videos. If you've benefited from that, if you believe in what I'm doing, uh, I want to recommend that you go to patreon.com and become a supporter of the show because when you do, you will gain exclusive access uh, to things that I share with my patrons as my way of saying thank you so much for your support and making this possible. If you're interested in that, you can head over to patreon.com, P A T R E O N dot com forward slash better bible reading that'll give you all the further details that you need all right we're on page number 29 in this book theoretical practical theology and as i said uh you know we covered a lot of ground last time going through the different kinds of, of doctrinal arguments that are in the text and I made the point last episode, I'll make the point again, that regardless if you're a preacher or not, this is so helpful because what he's doing is he's showing us how to analyze and walk through the text, which means that we can appropriate everything that he's saying here, uh, aside from uh, issues of, of actually uh, teaching and delivering the text. Uh, aside from that, we can take all of the principles that he's been teaching and apply it to the way that we study the Bible in uh, an individual setting. So you can use what he's saying here to work on uh, how you do your morning or evening devotions, how you study a particular book of the Bible, what to do with certain genres in the Bible. All of this is really uh, highly applicable beyond whether or not you're a preacher. Uh, but he did write this for preachers in general. And that's why uh, we are going to now deal with this uh, final episode 
uh, with some issues that do seem to uh, relate directly to preachers. Uh, but that's not to say that it's irrelevant to us, and we'll see how he weaves all of this together uh, in his conclusion. So we've worked all the way to uh, the top of page 29, where we see the heading, how more lengthy texts should be handled. Uh, he says, the more lengthy texts, as far as the sum of their matter is concerned, can and ought to be interpreted in the same way. And then he gives three considerations. So we think about the Bible, as it's been said, is essentially two-thirds narrative, is what I uh, have heard. Uh, whether or not that's mathematically accurate uh, is probably up for debate, depending on how you categorize certain books of the Bible. But even if uh, we're not going to take that uh, 66.6%, maybe we don't want to take that, um, the Bible is highly narrative in form. The Bible, you think about a book as foundational as Genesis, is a narrative. Uh, you think about the Gospels, which are narratives. Think about the life of figures such as David, narrative. The point is, if you want to understand the big idea of the Bible, we could even say that a book like Revelation is narrative in the way that it describes things to us and walks us through um, a storyline. That if you discount the idea of narrative, then you discount so much of what the Bible is teaching us, uh, not only in subject matter, but in communication method. It is true that we have things like Proverbs and things like the Psalms and things like the Prophets. Uh, those are not, strictly speaking, narrative in form, uh, but the Lord has chosen different methods of communication in the Bible to communicate with us. And the fact that he has not done everything the same way uh, should cause us to take special care into interpreting rightly the particular way that he's communicating to us. That means if we come across a narrative, we should receive it as such. Now, why am I talking about all this? Well, it's because narratives are almost always uh, more lengthy because the way that it unfolds, there's not always a hard uh, start and stop. Uh, we when we read our Bibles, typically treat those starts and stops as where our chapter divisions are, but you have to remember that chapter divisions were not part of the Bible. They're just there, and they were introduced much later on uh, just by reference points. So there's nothing um, inspired, we should say, about where Ephesians chapter 5 begins and where chapter 6 begins. Uh, the content is inspired. But those chapter divisions, those verse divisions, are not. Those are just there, uh, and sometimes not always in the best place. Sometimes you could probably look at it and say it would have made better sense to put a chapter division here rather than there. But it's a starting point, at least for us in our minds, of how to kind of divide or section off uh, the Bible in any particular book. When it comes to preaching, or even those of us who are just reading the Bible on our own, when it comes to deciding how large of a portion we're going to try to chew on in that moment for study, uh, 
we have to decide how to do that. Sometimes it's easier in smaller books because, well, chapters are uh, shorter by comparison in smaller books. If you look at a book like Isaiah or Jeremiah, chapters are very long, and sometimes it's very difficult to decide how to divide that up. That becomes uh, a very big issue if you're a pastor committed to preaching through books of the Bible, and if you're committed to doing that with no book of the Bible off limits. You have to decide how to deal with texts that are going to be much more lengthy uh, because it's difficult to kind of cut it in half. A prime example of this is at my church, our evening service right now, uh, our pastor has been preaching through uh, the book of First and Second Kings. We're at the very end now of the book of Second Kings, so we've been doing this for quite a while. And his uh, typical style of preaching through uh, this narrative of First and Second Kings is to deal with a chapter at a time. Sometimes the chapters are short, but most of the time they're very long. And so you have to deal with that in a much different way than, say, how he's dealing with his morning sermons through the book of First Peter, which has generally been, so far, just about three or four verses at a time. Three or four verses at a time compared to 30 or 40 verses at a time in Second Kings is quite different. And so you have to decide, how is it that you're going to structure that? How do you communicate that? How do you deal with a lengthy text such as that? Uh, hopefully, if he's listening to this, he won't mind me using him as, as an example here. Um, but we ask the same question, don't we, when it comes to reading the Bible? How do you read a book like 1 Peter compared to a book like 2 Kings? You probably treat them differently. But if you're going to regard all Scripture as God-breathed, 2 Timothy, all Scripture as profitable for teaching, profitable for exhortation, rebuke, reproof, all of this, then we have to say that there's value, there's equal value, in a book like 1 Peter as compared to 2 Kings. But because the length that we read those typically differs, we have to decide what to do. So Peter Van Master is going to help us. He gives us three considerations here. Now again, remember, this is applying to preaching, but we can also apply it to reading and studying the Bible on our own. Uh, he says, uh, first, either it is briefly explained according to the laws of textual exposition, Think of that as in what he has covered for us, what he's explained to us already. So he's referring us back to what we've already read and studied together. Then the goal of the entire text is accurately investigated. And from there, one doctrinal argument is constructed. And next, all things that are in the text are referred to their own place, such that one thing is referred to the confirmation or exposition of the doctrine, the other to the ingredients of consolation or rebuke or examination or exhortation. And this can be done in an extremely useful way. I have constantly observed this practice on most Lord's Days, but not without effort. So, if I were to summarize that, I would say that what he suggests here with a lengthy text, that first point, is by pulling one doctrine from that text and focusing on that one doctrine 
And then from there, unpacking multiple applications to that one doctrine. Uh, he says that he had constantly observed this practice on Sunday's preaching, and he says it takes effort, though. He says, but not without effort. So, what you could do, now again, this is not an exhaustive way of studying the Bible, because uh, we would want to say at the outset of thinking about lengthy texts that it's really impossible to render down a lengthy text of Scripture to just one doctrine or just one application. Chances are, I would say 10 out of 10 times, you're going to come across multiple doctrines in the text and multiple act applications. If you're trying to be exhaustive, it's going to be very difficult because it's going to require a whole lot of time. And you don't always have a whole lot of time when it comes to preaching a sermon. You don't want to be so long-winded that it ends up being unhelpful to people because you're trying to say every single thing that is there. And we could apply that too to studying the Bible. Unless you have an entire day devoted to studying a particular passage, we still have to be selective on what it is that we want to focus on. You can return to the text the next day and focus on something else. So you could rinse and repeat this until you kind of uh, wring it out of all of its goodness, if you will. Um, not exhaustively, of course, but just by way of focusing on this this day and then something else the next day, something else the next day, until you want to move to a different passage. But it is the case that whenever we come across the Bible um, multiple times, we get uh, multiple things out of it. This is not to say that the Bible is contradictory. It's not to say that the Bible is something different for every different person, as if it's not objectively true. But it is to say that the Bible has many, many teaching applications that we come across, and not everybody sees everything that's there. And not all of us see everything that is there on our first read-through. So he, he recommends here, you're dealing with a lengthy text of scripture, focus on one doctrine and then draw out multiple applications. That's one of three options that he provides for us. The second, he says, or if you do not prefer this, you could work through the passage by a brief analysis and exegesis according to the aforementioned laws of textual exposition. And when that is done, bring out its chief doctrines and from them, Pursue one or another that would be especially advantageous to the church, and through them, pursue the parts that especially regard edification. So here, this is kind of turning that first point um, on its flip side. His first suggestion was to take one doctrine and then draw out multiple applications from it. We might summarize the second point by saying, focus on multiple doctrines throughout the text and then draw out one special application. So your first op option is one doctrine, multiple applications. Your second option is multiple doctrines, one application. Either way, there's not a right or wrong here. He's just providing us with different methods of dealing with a large text of, of Scripture. You might want to do this uh, when, when you're thinking about studying the Bible. Um, maybe you don't like the word doctrine here because you see a different way of doing this depending on what genre of the Bible you're dealing with. Now, I mentioned that this primarily is going to focus on narratives, but the thing about the book of Revelation here, which is in some cases a narrative, uh, of course it's apop apocalyptic, of course there's 
prophetic quotations from the Old Testament. It's almost in a class of its own. Uh, but I would argue, because of the way that it's communicated, it does have a narrative element to it, even though it's not the same as something like Genesis or Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. With that being said, though, when you come across a book like Revelation, it's almost overwhelming beyond remedy to think what doctrine is being taught here. Because there's so many, right? There's so many uh, saturating a book like Revelation. However, when we ask the question, what theme is here? That might be a better way to understand the, the way that we could use the word doctrine in, in Revelation. If you're not limited to a particular doctrine, but you want to focus on a main theme of Revelation, that might be a little bit easier to do. Um, because you can notice patterns if you sit down for a long read-through. Um, I estimate uh, any time that you try to sit down and read the book of Revelation in one sitting, that's right, all 22 chapters. It probably takes between 45, if you're a generally fast reader, to an hour, uh, 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, an hour if you're more like an average reading speed, and maybe more like 70 minutes if you're a slow reader. Uh, so that's chewing off a lot, but it is doable. It's doable compared to a book like Deuteronomy that takes several hours. You wouldn't really be able to do that in one sitting. Uh, but if you do have a window of time, you want to read through the entire book of Revelation, you'll be able to see uh, themes. You'll be able to trace particular themes. There's a lot there. You could focus on so many different things, but you'll be able to see a pattern of themes throughout the book scattered around. And you could take this principle. You could focus on one theme in multiple applications, such as. Uh, the call to perseverance, the call to right doctrine, uh, because false teaching and cowardice are, are two things that really come up a lot in the book of Revelation. Um, or you could focus on multiple doctrines, i.e. multiple themes, and one application from that. Okay, so number three, <clears throat> and that's just a suggestion for you. I'm using Revelation as, as an example. Number three, he says, or in the individual parts of the text, you could mix in your own observations or applications, selecting from all the parts of the text those that are most useful and especially necessary for the church, which is a most commonly received method. In other words, this is the most popular way of preaching through lengthy texts. What he's saying here, I think, really could be summarized as multiple doctrines and multiple applications. So it's kind of a both-and approach to the first two options. Remember, the first option, one doctrine, multiple applications. Second option is multiple doctrines, one application. Now, the third option, multiple do doctrines, multiple applications. I might say, and my pastor can correct me if I'm wrong here, um, I might say that, that my pastor, going through Second Kings, does this third option. Um, the third option being where... We will read the entire sermon text together as a congregation. Let's just say Second Kings chapter 18. Um, in fact, let me turn here to it uh, just to kind of show you how this might be done. Now, I'm just pulling this chapter out of thin air. We're past this in our study as a church. 
Uh, but let's just say, okay, Second Kings chapter 18 is 37 verses long. You have two headings provided in the ESV Bible. And that is, Hezekiah reigns in Judah for verses 1 through 12. And then Sennacherib attacks Judah in verses 13 through 37. Uh, we would read that entire text, and then my pastor would give a summary of the entire chapter, so his exposition, his exegesis of the entire chapter. And then he would focus on particular doctrines and applications. Let's say he divides this in half the way that uh, the ESV translation does. He would focus on doctrines and applications in those first 12 verses, Hezekiah reigns in Judah. And then in verses 13 through 37, Sennacherib attacks Judah. Um, this is probably described, I don't like the terminology, but you might say this could be described kind of as mini-sermons or sermonettes. Again, I don't, I don't like that connotation because it sounds pretty cheesy. Uh, but the idea is you almost have miniature sermons uh, functioning in those divisions throughout the entire chapter. Now, sometimes a chapter might have multiple headings uh, instead of just, uh, or more than two headings instead of just two, as in the case there. So you could subdivide it even more. But again, this might be a way to think about how you study the Bible. What do you do when you come to uh, narratives? Do you, do you think in your mind that, well, this isn't a book like Galatians or the book like Romans or even the Gospels. And so I am not really looking for applications. I'm not really looking for doctrines. I'm just reading the story. And when I'm done reading the story, that I'm done with the chapter and then I move on to the next chapter, you might want to take pause and think about how you could benefit from looking for a doctrine, looking for an application, asking the question, how many can I find of each? And this is a way to really interact with narratives, i.e. lengthy texts of Scripture, uh, that you might not be thinking about. So hopefully this is helpful to you in uh, considering different ways to study God's Word. All right, so now the way that he closes out the chapter, or this whole study of the best method of preaching, is he talks a little bit about delivery. Now, again, this is not going to apply to us in terms of, of all of us being preachers, but it might be helpful just to think about. It might be helpful uh, to appreciate your own pastor because, believe it or not, these are things that we do have to think about and we should be thinking about as, as pastors. So he talks about delivery. He says, up to this point, we've mentioned invention, arrangement, and elaboration. Remember, he said four considerations at the very beginning of this that he wanted to go through with us about the best method of preaching, because we've gone through three of them, now there remains only delivery, which includes these three things. These three things he talks about as style, voice, and gestures. Just a couple points I want to bring up out of each one. So for style, he says, Style must be purified of all foreign expressions and terms from the arts so that everything can be understood by everyone. He says that it should be 
not pompous or long-winded or excessively common or lowly, but should be manly and spiritual. <clears throat> and then he says, it should be clear and perspicuous. So for style, uh, probably one of the people that I always like to point to uh, through church history is uh, one of the most influential men in my life who I have never met, but I will meet in heaven because he went to be with the Lord in 2017, R.C. Sproul. But I have had the privilege of watching, I don't know, dozens, maybe hundreds of, of teachings and, and sermons that he's given over his life. Uh, and uh, my wife and I had the privilege of visiting St. Andrews in uh, Sanford, just outside of Orlando, Florida, twice before he passed away to actually see him preach in person live. And I will say that um, everybody agrees who has benefited from R.C. Sproul's uh, preaching and teaching ministry. <clears throat> that for somebody who uh, was so learned, somebody who had such a strong intellect, somebody who uh, had years as a seminary professor, somebody who went and studied uh, for his. Uh, doctrinal studies overseas in uh, Holland and had to learn Dutch, and that takes a magnificent amount of of, uh, of brain power to, to do that, um, that his benefit to the church was how simply he could communicate complex ideas. He had a gift of communication. The gift was that he could communicate big ideas of theology. He could communicate uh, things that were, in a lot of ways, considered at a seminary level of learning. He could, he could communicate those to average people. And even more fascinating than just the fact that he could do that is that he didn't water it down or boil it down in a way that made it lose its vibrancy. Instead. He was able to take big, complex ideas of theology, um, but show them in a matter-of-fact way and communicate them with great effectiveness that instead of bringing the big ideas down to the people, he was able to bring the people up to the big ideas. I hope that makes sense. It was, it was challenging. Um, it, it wasn't dumbed down or stupefied. But um, it was still communicated with perspicuity, with clarity. Um, in the Protestant Reformation, we talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, which means the clarity of Scripture. And the Bible, in certain aspects, is hard to understand. It requires study. It requires us to um, be diligent. But the Bible is not communicated to us um, by way of code. The Bible is God's revelation. The Bible is God's revealing and unveiling things to us. It is, by definition, what God gives for us to understand. And so to say it is not understandable is a slap in the face to God, because we're saying that, well, I know that you're telling us that this is clear. I know you're telling us that you have revealed this to us by way of clarity, but I'm telling you it's unclear, right? We're, we're, we're telling God that what he calls clear 
is not clear. And the same idea can be applied to the preacher of Scripture. That preaching, because Scripture is clear, because Scripture is perspicuous, perspicuous, I should say, um, that the teaching should be clear as well. And I think R.C. Sproul is a prime example of somebody who is able to do that. Second, he talks about voice. Um, one word that I had to look up because I don't typically use it, he says the voice should be sonorous, distinct, and sufficient to satisfy every hearer, and neither excessively slow or excessively fast. Sonorous, which if you look it up, uh, we could say that sonorous means not timid. This was probably required more in Peter Van Maastricht's day as compared to other uh, times such as our own because in his day, well, you didn't have electricity. <laughs> you didn't have microphones. Uh, you had uh, church auditoriums that were designed for acoustics, um, but you needed somebody who was not timid uh, up behind the pulpit, because that would not really work well in communicating to all of the people in a way that can be heard and understood. Uh, we could even say more than that, that because the Bible is revelation from God, it is God speaking to us, therefore timid is antithetical to that. Speaking with timidity is contrary to what the Bible is, and therefore it is contrary to how the preacher should sound. Now, I do like that he qualifies that um, by saying in his second point about voice that it should be adapted to the matters and to the affections, so it shouldn't be too high or too low. But in the middle, uh, that way it can be raised and lowered as circumstances require. So you're not talking here about this lofty voice that uh, never seems to give way. You almost you almost feel exhausted because of the level <laughs> that the preacher has been going on and on and on and on. I think that's interesting uh, to think about uh, that he says we're not talking about monotone here. Uh, we're not talking about too high or too low either. We're talking about in the middle, but with vibrancy. And I think that's that's an interesting way to talk about that. But we shouldn't think here with preaching in a way that it is not timid. We shouldn't be thinking here that what he is after here is a performance-based uh, way of preaching. And that's where his final point comes into play about gestures. He says, it shouldn't be excessively affectionate. It shouldn't be, here's another word I had to look up, shouldn't be histrionic. Suitable to move laughter rather than to pious affections. But it should be spiritual, adapted to the things that are declared and to the affections that are intended to be moved. Preaching with spiritual gestures is the way that he puts it. 
So your gesture should adapt to what's being declared, and it should raise the affections that are intended to be raised. Uh, remember, he says earlier on in our study that affections aren't evil here, but they must be according to what the passage is dealing with. They should fit the occasion of the text, in other words. But that histrionic, that, that word, I looked it up, what he's saying is, don't be overly theatrical. So, don't be timid, right? Your voice should not be timid, but your gesture should not be overly theatrical. As is the case with everything that we've been reading in his best method of preaching, it seems that he keeps bringing us back to the idea of balance. Doctrine is a, is a point of balance. Application is a point of balance. Affections are a point of balance. Everything is back to this idea of balance. He's trying to steer us clear from one extreme or the other, and I really appreciate that about Peter Van Maastricht because he seems to think about so many things that we don't think about, and therefore, whenever we read him, we find that we have actually fallen into one of these two extremes, and it's because we are, we're not thinking about these things. And so when he helps us to think about them, it really protects us as preachers and as readers of the Bible uh, from drifting into an extreme. And I really, really am indebted to him for that reason. Um, that point about being overly theatrical, though, I think really says something about our culture of preaching. You could say that prosperity gospel preachers, in air quotes here, they have really given themselves over, their, over to theatrics. If you listen to the, the ramblings of these people, now aside from their doctrine, which is false, heretical, um, you'll find that they have uh, drifted into this histrionic style, this theatrical style, this over-the-topness. Now you can never tell them that they're guilty of monotone preaching. You can never tell them that they're guilty of being timid, but they are guilty of theatrics. And this this point uh, goes beyond prosperity gospel preachers now, because in our culture of hip and relevant preaching, Peter Van Maastricht says, back in his day, uh, what he has in mind from being histrionic is a preacher who is more suitable to move his people to laughter than to pious affections. I'm sad to say that this remains true in our day. Histrionic preaching might be taking place in prosperity gospel settings, but even in settings where doctrine is not to the point of heresy, not to the point of, of, of a false gospel, but maybe just a point of great imbalance. Ask yourself how many relevant preachers in the kind of evangelical movement of our day, these men who have become viral on social media, who whose churches are uh, becoming viral on YouTube, have millions of subscribers, they're reaching a worldwide audience. Most of the pastoral images 
at those church are men who have proven to make people laugh. They're able to get people to laugh much more than they're able to stir people up to pious affections. It's fascinating to me that the 17th century theologian really has his thumb on an issue happening in the year 2022. Uh, some things never change, as Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. Um, it's a sad thing, but it's something that we should consider. Um, Peter Van Maastricht is warning us of an improper way of preaching. There's nothing unbiblical about laughter. But preaching in its gesture should fit the occasion of the text. And if preaching is overly comedic, we have to say that it's not being faithful to the text because the Bible is not, at the end of the day, a comedy. The Bible is dealing with spiritual matters. There's a, a level of seriousness. There's a place for a joke here or there. There's a place for uh, laughter that can be edifying and uplifting to the congregation. But if you look up a lot of preaching that's taking place today, it seems like the refrain is punchlines and not calls to exhortation, admonishing the congregation to spiritual vitality. And this should be um, lamented in our day. And if you're a preacher that has fallen into this, it should be corrected. It should be repented of on, on your part because we're called to spiritual gestures as he defines, again, as uh, affections that are intended to be moved according to the text of Scripture. That's an aside, but I thought it was worth talking about because it does seem to be a contemporary issue. All right, so to close, one last thing. He reminds us why he calls this the best method. It's the best method because, he says, it's best for the preacher, it's best for the hearer, it's best for the things that will be said, and it's best especially for practice. The great Peter Van Maastricht always bringing us to practice, i.e. theoretical, practical theology. He's always bringing us back to practice. This is not best because it's just his opinion. It's best because he has in mind here what can be put into practice. What leads us to practice of doctrine? What leads us to putting into practice what we have read in the text? Uh, one point that I thought was really fascinating, that theme that he has been uh, suggesting again and again and again in our study here of the best method of preaching is the idea of memory. He says it's best for the preacher uh, because regardless of what passage they're dealing with, they know what to do with it. They know <clears throat> how to refer everything that's in that passage to its proper place. And then he says, and likewise, commit it to memory. You look at the hearer. It's best for the hearer because 
they're more easily able to follow what's been said, and because of that, they're able to commit it to memory. It's best for the things that are going to be said, because it can be recalled according to each topic, or memorized, without any trouble. This idea of memory here, or again, I might like to insert here, uh, biblical meditation, uh, churning through each idea that's there, organizing it in a way that it allows us to hide God's word in our hearts, is really what he's talking about in terms of, of memory. So, the preacher is able to find a way to commit it to memory. Because of that, he's able to communicate that to the hearers who can commit it to memory. This helps us to recall the content in a way that is helpful, and by virtue of that, we're able to put all of this into practice. So what he's trying to do is build up the people of God. He's instructing preachers of how they should preach, because it's going to edify them. When it edifies them, it in turn edifies the congregation, and everybody is able to benefit from this. That's why he says it's the best method, not because it's simply the style he prefers. Remember, he's talked about multiple styles. It's not just the way of organizing the text that he prefers, because he's talked about different ways of doing that, but it's best because it's always going back to this idea of meditating on God's word and thereby putting into practice what we read. He has this in mind as the best method because by God's grace, it's a method that gets it to the head, into the heart, and observed in the hands. A method of preaching that has the head, the heart, and the hands in mind. It's a holistic approach to preaching, and because of that, he says it's the best method. Well, I would have to agree with Peter Van Maastricht. I think that it's hard to top such a concise but jam-packed uh, analysis of preaching and something that is so great, in my opinion, that we can see the way that it applies to those of us who aren't preachers but want to do a much better job at studying any given text of Scripture. Well, it's been a pleasure to go through Peter Van Maastricht's best method of preaching with you, and I'm happy to say that because we have completed this, that next time on Teaching Thursdays we will jump into the big idea of this book, and that is uh, the meat and potatoes, prolegomena. And we will begin that by chapter one in prolegomena, which he entitles The Nature of Theology. So we will be getting into Peter Van Maastricht's systematic theology. I can't wait to do that with you, but I do hope that our study through his best method of preaching has been really helpful to you. If you're just now joining us, I really encourage you to go back on the podcast feed or on the Better Bible Reading YouTube channel, you can recall all of our previous studies through Peter Van Maastricht's best method of preaching. And I promise you, because we've been going through his content, uh, that is going to be very helpful to you. But thank you so much for being with me on this episode. Thank you for your continued listening and watching support. Uh, it is so great to be with you all uh, each and every week on the Better Bible Reading podcast. 
Uh, please go check out the additional content you can find at betterbiblereading.com, including a free course that I've created on how to read the Bible. I've had uh, many, many people enroll over the last few weeks. Uh, the year 2022 so far has seen a huge growth of new students going through uh, what I call uh, my gift to you of how to read the Bible. And so if you have not taken advantage of that, please head over to betterbiblereading.com and enroll today for free, and you can work through it at your own pace. But until then, I will see you next time on the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Take care.